0: Welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and here's my co-host, Morgan. Hello. And this week we're joined by a special guest, Salagna Misra. Uh,
1: hi, um, I'm Salagna Misra, as Gav said in her beautiful accent. And um, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. So this week we have our special guest because we are going to be discussing Pacific Rim. We will talk a little about Pacific Rim uprising at the end, but it won't be too spoilery. But this is kind of a an intensive Pacific Rim convention here. Plus Morgan, as someone who has watched and experienced Pacific Rim, and I think <laughs> probably enjoyed it to some extent. <laughs> but Selena is like a number one expert. So it's gonna be great.
2: Yes. I recently watched Pacific Rim with Slagda and her friends, and I like Pacific Rim very much, but it was like being at a convention for something that you don't know anything about. And I was like, oh my God, this is very intense. So
0: literally just while you were saying that sentence, I was thinking, what would a Pacific Rim convention be like? And the thing is that like conventions usually are like just a hall full of merchandise, but I've already thought of what my ultimate Pacific Rim convention would be. And it would literally be a full recreation of the Chateau Dome where you would have like a lab that you'd visit and they'd have like a ton of different themed bars and restaurants and a club night zone. Oh my like, God. themed and everyone would cosplay.
1: Yes. And the, if they had merchandise, it would be like selling like patches like they have on the jackets like and stuff like kaiju that. kaiju parts.
0: <laughs> it's like, I want to buy like a tank with like a foot long kaiju louse in it.
1: <laughs> yeah. It would go in with like your Victorian victorian theme like uh all the other things that you have that are like frankenstein-ish and then like kaiju (laughs) birds just go
0: along with it (laughs) do we need to do a plot summary of pacific rim i feel like in, in the very unlikely event that some of our listeners don't know what happens in pacific rim i'm sure you're aware that it is a movie where people go in giant mecha robot suits and then they fight Godzilla-like monsters. The general plot is that a breach opened underneath the Pacific Ocean. All these monsters start coming out. No one can figure out why they're there, but it's an apocalyptic event which is, you know, very transparently sort of climate change related. Um, And while the foolish governments of the world are trying to build pointless walls to keep the monsters out, which FYI was 2013, so it wasn't even a Trump thing, um, the smart, heroic geniuses of Idris Elba's Jaeger squad are building these giant robots. And the thing that makes this movie truly great is that the robots can only be powered by friendship. You have to have the psychic <laughs> bond known as drift compatibility, and it can be only brought between two minds who are perfectly in sync, and that of course means that the movie introduces two characters, one of whom is a hunky yet sensitive blonde named Riley Beckett, played by Charlie Hunnam, and Charlie Hunnam's incredibly unconvincing American accent, and the other one is Makamori, played by the wonderful Rinko Kikuchi, who is a delight and very emotionally intense. And she is, you know, the survivor of a kaiju attack adopted by Captain Idris Elba, who's in charge of the robot squad. They bond, they save the world. Also, there's some side characters. There's some very funny, weird scientists played by Byrne Garnum and Charlie Day. So yeah, that is the gist of Pacific Rim.
1: Oh, although I do want to add that one thing that uh, you left out that's key is that in the beginning of when the breach opens, the UN decides to make the giant robots. And, um helps create the technology of drift compatibility, and it's only, and this movie is set five years after the fact, when the UN has given up, and that's when they start
2: building walls. There is a lot of world building. I was going to say, I feel like that's a level of detail that <laughs> reflects how deep into this you are, because to most people, that is not important. <laughs> but it's the UN! <laughs> so I, just, I just can't get right. over
1: that it's the UN, that comes up with this. I, I mean, I guess this is the level of detail that I know, but I'm just like, oh, Guillermo del Toro, like, you have so much more faith in it. If we weren't, like, and in, like, institutions. <laughs> well, Guillermo del Toro
0: is existing in a wonderful fantasy world where the UN gets together to solve a problem, but also they solve it with, like, really cool giant robots yeah. <laughs> which have badass names.
2: <laughs> I mean, everything about this film, which I think is really, really enjoyable, and I definitely like more than the shape of water the prestige film that won the academy award for best picture this year also genuinely surprising to me (laughs) yes like i find it more enjoyable to watch but like it's very dumb but the thing about it is that it knows it's dumb dumb, right and it embraces it and it's very sincere and i respect that i think that's fine
0: I feel like no matter what your background, everyone can really appreciate the joy of when Makamori takes the giant robot sword out of her robot arm and then slams it into a Godzilla. It's like, yeah, (laughs) genius.
2: Although, although as someone pointed out in our little viewing session the other day, she could have just done that a lot earlier (laughs) in that fight.
0: That is the kind of question we should not be picking up. (laughs) No.
2: Yes, that is how you have to watch this movie is just to sort of turn off that part of your brain. Like, it's fine. For instance, also at this viewing session, numerous times, Solagna said things like, "But why is she saying that?" Or he's saying that. Like, obviously, these people know that the suit is powered by nuclear power, and someone else <laughs> would say, "Yes, but the audience needs to be reminded." <laughs> like, it's just a lot of obvious dialogue. Everything that Charlie Hunnam says is bad in a very amusing way. He is not good in this film. It's great. He's so lovable, great. though.
0: He's so... The thing is, he exudes a sort of like a charming puppy dog aspect. And that is rare in the realm of action hero roles. He's just very supportive. He's a nice boy.
1: Yeah, I... Uh, one thing Morgan is being very nice and not pointing out yet is that... A- Continuously throughout this the screening, I was like, "Oh, um, I love how Charlie Hunnam is doing this, or I love what he's doing here, and how he's like doing all these line readings and stuff." And and to be honest, the part that I took away from the sword <laughs> with um, Makamori is just like, "Oh, like see, this is the difference between their uh, their fighting styles because she's prepared and she engineered this, and like she remade." The- the Jaeger, so she knows that the sword is in place, so she's prepared. But then um Raleigh, whose name I cannot pronounce no matter what, um is like the more uh spontaneous fighter. And I just
0: I had never considered that, but you were right.
2: <laughs> Whereas I watched and was like, Charlie Hotham cannot act. This is entertaining. Should be. I think
0: <laughs> he's a wonderful is actor. Who cannot, he is definitely the worst Ac- he's the worst accent I've seen, apart from Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange accent. Which is weird, because Charlie Hunnam stars in an American TV series, and as far as I know, in the TV series, literally people who've seen both the movie and his show say that he's fine
2: in the show, and it's just the movie where he can't do it. Whoa. It's amazing. I don't understand. I uh, believe it in real life he has a kind of standard mid-Atlantic accent. He does not. He has, like, this- naturally his accent
0: is like, full-on Newcastle. Oh, he may have become more mid-Atlantic in recent
2: years, but... I must be thinking of someone else then. Yeah, because he was in The Last City of Z last year, which is a very good film. I don't think he's amazing in it, but he's much better than he is in this movie. But he's doing a very, very posh English accent in that, and it's fine. And then you watch him in this, and you just think, what is happening? (laughs) yeah, I don't know. And uh, my brother recently watched this movie with a bunch of his friends. My brother is a very straight boy. And someone pointed out at some point during the movie that the two scientists have more sexual tension than the main couple of the film. And then once they had sort of picked up on this, they all were discussing it throughout their viewing. And my brother was like, which is totally true. Like, it's clearly right. And I was like, oh, this is great. (laughs) Like, And I agree with him. <laughs> Watching the film, like I think that, like intentionally, Gale
0: Del Toro didn't want him to kiss because he was like, I don't want this to be an explicitly romantic relationship. He kind of knows when to like put romance in and when not to, rather than a lot of movies that kind of force it or don't make it work. And I was always like, I really love this relationship because it's so sincere and beautiful, but you can interpret it as romantic or non-romantic.
2: Well, we wa- so I had seen this once when it came out, and then not since a few days ago. And it was much more romantic than I They are so call. romantic. Yeah. They it's... love each other. It's just not not super sexy. Well this is the thing, as I don't think they have a ton of chemistry. Yeah. But everything about their interaction is like quite they're soulmates. Ex- well Right. It's very explicitly romantic, just not sexual. I think Sulano you're about to say something on this point uh
1: well i feel like one thing like the the scene when they're when he's trying out um potential uh jaeger pilots um like he keeps saying like oh you make this gesture like you make these faces and stuff like that and i was thinking i was thinking like oh yeah like that's kind of what like chemistry is Where you pay attention to the other person's face and can understand what they're saying without them saying it, and um, I think Gav is right that they don't really have like natural chemistry or anything. But I think the way that they're presented, it's especially in that scene, it's like oh, they're paying attention to each other a lot more than you would you would usually see in like in even like romantic comedies. (laughs) It's like much more than than people think like it's much more than uh you would expect cuz yeah i was also i was like oh it is it's really hard for me to interpret this as in a like as um now as like not romantic at all
0: <laughs> i mean i feel like it has this really beautiful sort of sweeping romance concept where it's sort of like the, the thing where like in the dance scene in Pride and Prejudice is like always the example <laughs> that everyone like goes back to where it's like the camera's like swinging right them and you're like I know they're meant to be which is like why the whole drift compatibility concept is amazing because it's the ultimate sort of fanfic trope soulmates thing without it being shoehorned into a really sort of stereotypical movie romance concept because without going into spoilers for Pacific Rim Uprising they kind of don't understand what that is. Like They just kind of put people in Jaeger's willy-nilly, and also they like have a random character who's just there to prove that the male leads are attracted to a woman, and it's like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Why would you do that? This is the opposite. (laughs) Although I will say I did enjoy the film otherwise.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's what I've heard, that people who really liked and enjoyed the first one are like, oh yeah, I like the second one, but it's not as good as the first one.
0: I don't yeah they did not understand the basic concepts that held together the original but I'm impressed that the new director who's literally never directed a movie did manage to make a competent film because I mean too many films are given to random guys who literally have never made a movie
1: like you talked about John Boyega and how he's in it he like produced it so clearly he was part of one of those fandoms where they talked about where like like one thing uh, Morgan mentioned while we were watching was like drift compatibility and Pacific Rim AUs, like how every fandom has versions of that. Um, but another thing I was thinking was that the whole swooping romance camera movement thing is also in The Force Awakens. <laughs> <It> <laughs> is, yeah. yeah, with John John Boyega. It's like yeah. and
0: John Boyega have that moment, and it's very like it's very intense and beautiful. And cinematography is a huge part of how we absorb the wonders of emotion. <laughs> and yeah, just FYI, John Boyega is. Very clearly, the best part of the sequel. He is so fucking good. His star power is just off the charts.
2: <laughs> he is excellent in all things. And I'm glad that he is getting to do fun stuff. It was funny though, we got to the end of the movie and I just said, like, this so doesn't need a sequel at all. Yeah. It resolves everything, it's so satisfying they've saved the world they are you know they don't make out at the end but it is it's perfectly pretty self contained yeah yeah they cancel the apocalypse so right <laughs> so i was slightly surprised and it didn't make that much money so i was slightly surprised that I think maybe Universal
0: and so Legendary Pictures made it and then like Universal kind of distributed it and I think maybe Universal was panicking because their Monsters franchise has now flopped twice so that would be my guess
2: (laughs) well and I saw something today about how they're interested in like a Pacific Rim extended universe oh god yeah we may be getting a whole lot more of these movies which I guess is good for Dear but I don't, yeah, I mean this one,
0: the next one is definitely setting itself up for a threequel and like Stephen DeKnight, the guy who directed it and is really primarily a writer, I think he just came off the writer's room for the Transformers franchise so not every movie franchise has like a writer's room but I mean, it's not worth it. Like the things that made the original one were so great were drift comp- compatibility, the characters were all really idiosyncratic and fun and Gilda Toro has this really distinctive visual style, so it looks incredible. And I'm like, if you make a sequel, why not just piggyback off that visual style instead of going full Transformers, which is what they did. The costumes were very good, though.
2: Well, yeah, I think that the thing about that first film is that a lot of the stuff that happens is quite dumb, but it's so unbelievably earnest and sincere, and there is enough about it that is you know distinct and odd even though what it's drawing from with the sort of robots fighting monsters thing is obviously very familiar genre wise i remember you know i went to this with a friend of mine from college and because it had gotten really good reviews and so i said to her like this movie's supposed to be really good we should go and she was quite skeptical and we had such a good time it was like a packed cinema everyone was so into it and it felt kind of like you were. Discovering something, even though it was a huge blockbuster, which is not the experience. Yeah, like I remember, literally. Right? So
0: when I rewatched it last week, I rewatched it with my friend who only started watching sci-fi last year, and primarily she reads a lot of Russian literature, and she was like, "This is awesome! This is so great!" great and I'm just like, "I'm so glad this is going across all cultural divides." <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I feel like... So I didn't watch it in theaters because I had heard bad reviews. So I didn't um watch it, but then, like, my brother and I rented it from Netflix and we were really, really, really shocked at what we were watching and what was happening and, like... I really enjoyed it. And I think what ended up happening after that was because I didn't get that amazing experience Morgan did, I've shown this to so many people. And I've seen it so many times. And part of the reason why I know, like, so many random facts was because uh, I have watched it with, like, 10 or 15 of my friends. or like, And also, like, their friends who I don't know. So, like, people will always just show up um, when I have, like... Screenings because I've had multiple screenings, including on my birthday, <laughs> just to like show people and just to get so much information about those people and then about um including like like um people were in the military and they were like pointing out that Idris Elba is like wearing like obviously like you know it's military but like they were like oh yeah I have like uh an, a uniform like that it's for special occasions not necessarily for like talking to. A skype session with the all the u n members <laughs> um which i I thought I was like, oh yeah i i guess i never it never occurred to me that um the way that they present like people who the Jaeger pilots and the Jaeger program is like very like i i had like obviously acknowledged it that it was part of the military, but I hadn't thought about how someone from the military would acknowledge it or or what have you and then like yeah. But I've made a lot of people watch this movie.
0: <laughs> What's your favorite scene in the movie? Uh, wow,
1: I love all of it. Um... <laughs> Putting you on the
0: spot. I'm just curious to see, like which part could they, as, as a true expert.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess for me, I do really like, like the physical compatibility section because of the way it looks at their fighting styles. Because I also did Taekwondo when I was um, in high school, and I'm always interested in how fighting and action are presented on screen, so this is kind of like an intellectual way of saying I like and watch a lot of action movies, um, (laughs) but I feel like watching that is really interesting because it's just like talking about those fighting styles in the form of a conversation as, (laughs) really, um, how do you say his name again, Morgan? Rally. Rally. um points out. And uh, it's just like, oh, yeah, like, also, if we we mentioned The Force Awakens, but, like, there's, like, the fight between John Boyega and Kylo Ren. Like, it's really interesting because there's a part when, like, John Boyega goes all on the offense and just is continually moving towards Kylo Ren. And I'm like, you're not supposed to do that. I know that because one time when I went on the offense in, in like, Taekwondo, if they were like, you're making it really easy for me to kick you in the chest. Like, all I have to do is, you're coming to me. So I think about that all the time. Um, and, like, in what's great about how this is filmed, especially, is how... Um, Mako is not filmed in any way or angle that makes you feel icky, <laughs> and you can see the actual way they are fighting. Like because especially because it's like kind of a a dance. Like it's like they're not actually trying to hurt each other. You get to see the technique a little bit better. And then, I mean, another a franchise that has like good fighting styles is like Captain America. Like where you can see where every what everything's happening and it moves extremely
0: quickly.
2: I think that the The fight scenes in the Captain America movies are totally incoherent to watch. Yeah,
0: I think they kind of cut too much. But like with Pacific Rim, it was like the cinematographer for that was Guillermo Navarro, who's literally an Oscar-winning cinematographer, and has worked with Guillermo del Toro on a few movies. He's like, he would never make this kind of movie if it wasn't specifically with Guillermo del Toro. It looks so good. And it was really, it was really noticeable watching the sequel because that has just like, just terrible, it looks awful. They have all these hand-to-hand combat scenes where someone's just sort of flinging a camera around in the foreground in front of someone's face and it's like, uh, okay. But yeah, like I think like the whole visual thing is just so vital, like Del Toro kind of, he he's very intensively into visual world building and he kind of always has all these notebooks that he makes before he's even kind of working with the concept artists and stuff where he has all of his ideas it's just such an important part of kind of making the universe actually feel like something that exists because this really does this doesn't feel like something like Star Wars like it is a really simple dumb movie and now I've watched both films in quick succession it really made me think a lot of the Fast and Furious franchise because it has that same sort of emotional sincerity and it's just completely pure fun with like barely any sort of examination of political themes like obviously it's about you know global warming or whatever but not really and it really does rely on a like kind of visual background and i really loved like there's so much stuff you see in the background of the first movie that really fleshes out like they have this whole idea of people who've become kaiju worshippers and they've set up this religion around the monsters that are coming to kill them and they've got this kind of motif of blue everywhere because the kaiju bleed blue so they have all this blue blood all over the place but you also have stuff like makamori's hair is dyed blue and then all of the costumes are so individual which is very very rare in an action movie because usually people are very concerned about everyone just looking very straightforward unless it's like a flamboyant villain or a sexy girl and in Pacific Rim, every single character, unless they're wearing uniform overalls, has really distinctive fashion sense. Like, even the tech guy, like Tendo Choi, who's sitting around pressing buttons in the big lab, he is, like, he's wearing, like, suspenders and he's got, like, a rockabilly haircut and stuff, because, like, that's his thing. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, one thing I was telling, uh, telling Morgan while we were watching, I was like, he looks like Lupin the Third. He's got his hair, like, cut in a certain way, it's not, like, with pomade, but, like, he's got the suspenders, he's got the bow tie... I was like, I don't know if he brought this forward or if Guillermo was specifically, I don't know, like, has watched Lupin the Third, which is like, he and Kanye I mean, I fans. think, I'm <laughs> sure it was the
0: costume designer. Oh, yeah. Kate Hawley, who did a bunch of Del Toro movies, as far as I remember. I think she may have done Crimson Peak.
1: One thing that you were saying about the visual style, uh, when I was watching The Shape of Water, uh, I was thinking about, like, oh, this also has, like, a government entity and, like, the way that, like, the the place that she cleans... I don't remember what it's called again, but, like, it's, like, mechanical plus, like, a lot of water everywhere. Like, she's cleaning up water all the time, and she's cleaning... Because I feel like you don't really see... Or maybe I can't think of any examples where you can see, like, machinery and, like, mechanics and um, metalwork places that are just, like, um, like look like um, airplane hangars or warehouses or whatever that are just covered in water, like... Um, just like that visual style, I feel like, oh, when I was watching it, I was like, yeah, there's that, I guess.
2: <laughs> well, he does the sort of um, aesthetic grime. Yeah. Very well. If that's his thing. Which I don't always love, personally. But it's definitely his kind of look. Or in something like Crimson Peak, which is a period piece, he sort of historicizes it. Like the house in Crimson Peak is very much the same thing. It's just. Like Victorian period, But like mechanical grime.
0: Um, he doesn't just kind of go for standard visual concepts because, in like basically every superhero movie and kind of mainstream action movie, they do tend to go for like a paint by numbers approach to kind of set design and concept design with Del Toro because he has like this very specific idea. And you know, he used to work as a as like a special effects guy. Like he trained as that before he became a director, so it's like he really knows what he wants, and if you're making, you know, most most action movies don't have that kind of daring, and really the only thing I can remember recently that's, like, of that budget level that actually was visually interesting was, was the, A Cure for Wellness by Gore Verbinski, which I would not, like, fully endorse because it's three hours long and has a lot of incesty rape and a lot of people being, like, murdered by eels. Oh, my God. But visually, <laughs> looks very interesting. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So it's got that going forward. Oh my
0: Yeah, Gore Verbinski really hit the I think the studio was like, thanks for the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, you can do whatever you want. And he was like, I'll take that one hundred percent on board. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, Gav, what where does this rank on your your Del Toro list? Oh man, say? I wish you'd asked me this before
0: we started recording, because then I could really like I could really give myself a properly scientific ranking.
2: Yeah. Um, it's pretty well, What is your favourite? I
0: think my ranking is probably Pan's R- Labyrinth, Crimson Peak, The Shape of Water, The Devil's Backbone, Kronos, Pacific Rim, Blade 2, and then the rest. Although actually they're all amazing for different reasons. I watched them all in depth last year and I have a lot of extensive thoughts in every single film. But I really do want to re-emphasize that while all of his art house films are obviously in many ways better than the blockbusters, Blade 2 fucking rules. Blade <laughs> 2 this is so good. <laughs> I rewatched watched it being like, oh, I bet this is going to be like a bit of a dumb like, early 2000s movie. It's quite early in his career. It's probably not going to be as good as Hellboy. And it's like, it's fucking better than Hellboy. It rules. <laughs> Which one is that? I mean, it's it's the it's the Blade movie that's good.
2: <laughs> I don't know what Blade is. Oh, okay. So, so Blade
0: I, is me. Blade is a Marvel character. He's like the first Marvel character that was a really successful movie franchise. But the concept is that he's a vampire hunter. It's an adult rated uh,
2: vampire okay. hunter
0: franchise, and Wesley Snipes plays the main character, and he's just oh, got of loads course. of cool coats yeah. and he like murders vampires. But the first one is really good, and Wesley Snipes he's like perfect. It's one of those roles where you're like, you are amazing. Like he's so charismatic. And what happened with Blade 2 is Guillermo del Toro was like, I'm fantastic at making horror. I want to make a really stylish movie. I've got a very, very clear concept of what I want for my super mega vampires. Here's a giant book of sketches of the mega vampire. I really don't understand or care about Blade, the character, Wesley, what will you do? And Wesley was like, I will make up the character and I am happy for you to do whatever you like with the vampires as long as I get to leave work at 5 pm every day and see my kids. They had the best working relationship. Um, In the third film, Wesley Snipes hated the new director so much there was a scene where he refused to open his eyes and they had to CGI his eyes open. (gasps) What?
2: And then he went to jail for tax I'm us.
0: connected, and I would be overjoyed to see Wesley Snipes' career go off the C list and return, preferably to Blade in a movie where he still plays Blade, but the main character is his daughter, Teen Blade. <laughs>
2: you should pitch that.
0: You oh, should it's pitch being pitched to Hollywood. <laughs> this is a commonly held opinion on the Twitters.
2: <laughs> oh my god! Like John
0: super. Boyega literally said publicly, because like people were like, people really want you to play Blade, John Boyega, and John Boyega was like. Fuck no, Wesley Snipes is I'm not stealing <laughs> Wesley Snipes's role, which is really the only response you can give. And I cannot re- imagine having the temerity to ask him that question.
2: <laughs> well, he's busy pay- playing uh, Stacker Pentecost's
0: son. Yeah. son it's quite so. disappointing that Stacker Pentecost, the man with the coolest name in the world, has a child named Jake.
2: I kept thinking that ridiculous thought summary,
0: Jake. There are no Jakes in the
2: Pacific Rim universe. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: like the main characters, all right. And I'm pretty sure that Scott Eastwood's character, who is, of course, of course, a cardboard box, a handsome cardboard box who does not need to be in the film. But his character is called, like, Nate or something. Oh. It's like, really? Just, I mean, no. No. I've now seen Scott Eastwood in three movies. He plays the same character in all of them, and he could have been excised from the film completely, and it would not have made any difference to the plot. Delete him.
2: He is terrible. He should not be in films. That's my opinion. But yeah, all the names in Pacific Rim are so good.
0: Newt. They, they have they have a down. biologist whose name is Newt. Not only <laughs> is it Newt, it's obviously short for Newton. So it's it's a science reference.
2: Uh, Charlie Day,
0: what an actor! Ah,
1: amazing,
2: sublime. I genuinely think that he is the acting MVP of Pacific Rim. And this is a film in which Idris Elba stars, (laughs) so that's really saying something. Idris Elba, of course, excellent in the movie, as is Riko Kikuchi. but Charlie Day does a whole lot of acting, capital A. There's lots of jokes. Do you know why he's in the movie? No. So, Guillermo del Toro
0: is a big fan of It's Always Sunny. Yeah. And he (laughs) saw, I think he just, like, caught a scene where Charlie Dade was just going on, like, he went on, like, a three-minute rant about rats. Oh, yeah! Like, I've got to get this guy in a movie. So he got the guy in the movie. He gave him a role, which is quintessential Charlie Day, where he's essentially playing himself doing the rant. But, like... yeah it's just brilliant and he's even better in the second one because like in the first one I like the two scientists but I basically like their background roles like I'm more interested in the main people Mm -hmm. in the sequel the scientists get a much more significant role and they're actually fucking genius because both of their performances are so utterly bug fucking (laughs) sane but um Like just, it's like if you think if you think that like Bern Gorman's weird face is weird, he's like, oh no, it's gonna get weirder, very very. Peculiar <laughs> but like after this movie, Guillermo Dotoro literally has been in. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. He's played a character in the show, and Bern Gorman has been in for a guest episode. Oh so that's so beautiful. They're both in it. It's adorable. That's great.
1: <laughs> it is one of like the best sitcoms ever. It's it's so crass and ar- horrible and so good so amazing you just need
0: to start like four seasons in I started like three or four seasons in just skip the first few it doesn't matter watch the musical episode
2: yeah the problem is that there's just so much of it that it's very overwhelming yeah it
0: doesn't you can just jump in yeah I I mean I started with the musical episode and I was just like I can't believe what I'm experiencing right now
1: yeah I mean like there's no like I mean there's continuity but like you don't need to know all the
0: it's it's sitcom continuity
2: yeah (laughs) yeah Okay. That's my goal now. I'll do it. Cause he's, he's very charming. I enjoy him. It's it's quite much. interesting
0: to like hear interviews with them. Cause it's like, they are, they're like constantly praised by people who are really into comedy by being like, this is one of the best comedy shows in the air. And the reason it's been going for like 11 seasons is cause it costs like $15 to make. Cause it's just a <laughs> bunch of like cheap ass actors improvising on a set. But it's like, because they're all still making themselves, they're very kind of cognizant of the creative process, so you do get like quite serious interviews with them where they're talking about like the political background of why they're making a show that's all about despicable assholes, but also just about like the process of being funny. And it's quite interesting because I feel like there is a sort of a character who is like the weird, funny character in every blockbuster movie, and it's really interesting to see someone char- like Charlie Day be quite intellectual about it, while also his entire career is him just playing a very similar string of extremely manic, bizarre roles. <laughs> yeah. Yes,
1: yeah.
2: Well, if you're good at that and self-aware about it, you know, make it work for you, I suppose, especially if you actually know what you're doing. There was a great little snippet of an interview that I believe we've all read with Hugh Grant about having where the interviewer started with being like, You've played such a wide variety of roles in your career and he was like, That's very nice, but well, we both know that's not true. Like, I absolutely have not done
1: that. He says something like, like, Yeah, what people know about me is my range.
2: Like <laughs> But, you know, Hugh Grant's very good at playing Hugh Grant, so that's Paddington Two is truly his finest role. I yes, it's this is very relevant to Pacific Rim, but that's fine because (laughs) Paddington Two is an important topic for all conversations. If you like
0: good movies, and if you like good movies, you should watch (laughs) the Paddington films, which are among the best films that came out in both the years they came out. I fully agree. Okay. i see it. on my top ten list for 2017.
2: Well, Paddington Two came out in 2018 in America, so you know what—it's eligible for the Academy <laughs> for this year. Hugh Grant for supporting actor. It's my favorite. <laughs> Can't wait. Make it happen.
0: <laughs> oh, God, it'd be such a dream if John Boyega could get Best Actor for Pacific Rim Two. Wow. I—I I mean, in not terms of sheer happen. powerfully holding up a whole film by his own strength, <laughs> yes. There's there's like a 5 minute scene where he just wears a decorative bathrobe and puts sprinkles on ice cream while Scott Eastwood feeds him expository dialogue and he just fills the rest of the scene with his personality.
2: Oh my god. I
0: thought when you said that... feeds
1: him I was like, "Oh, that's why they need a character a female character to show that they're not gay." <laughs> this is disappointing.
0: <laughs> Scott Eastwood is such a plank of wood that even though it's a movie which is supposedly where they're meant to be like soulmates who have a psychic bond, and also there's literally a scene where John Boyega talks about how sexy he is. They have no chemistry. That's how much of a cardboard box just got used with it.
2: What a missed opportunity. That's so tragic. Yeah. The number of young, hot actors they could have hired to fulfill that role, and yet no. Scott Eastwood, of all people. Oh my. It's just, it's just grim. <laughs> Is there anything else we should know about the sequel? Any other salient details that might be entertaining for our listeners who may or may uh, not have seen the film?
0: But the clothes are very good. Mm-hmm. There is three female engineers with very different roles. Oh, cool! Which is that's very nice. Yeah, yeah. it has more female characters in the original movie. Yeah, I say you know don't hold your breath in terms of it looking good because no one involved in that really knows how to like. Put a camera in a steady place and allow people to move around it like humans. But you know, I feel like that's par for the course in these sort of Transformers movies. And as long as you're not too attached to the world building for the original, super fun.
2: Yeah. That is much more than I was expecting. Yeah, yeah I had very low expectations. I feel like
0: the, the cameo they get from Akamori is trash. Oh, it is wow. trash. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> That being said, I totally enjoyed myself. I don't feel like Morgan would enjoy herself, but I also don't feel like she would watch it. So I think we're safe. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Maybe I will watch it on my television one day. You can, be going to you the can experience
0: the power and strength of John Viega's incredibly funny, charming performance. Like halfway through the movie, I was just like, he's like full on Tom Cruise, Will Smith, starring in a fairly good action movie, but making it genius levels of charm. And I'm that's, sure that he the have of yeah. dialogue because he literally just says stuff that sounds like John Boyega. And I'm like, there's no fucking way that the 17 <laughs> people listed on this like writing credits in <laughs> this movie wrote
2: this, but, this dialogue. Just no way. <laughs> well, good for him for pulling that off because another notch on the belt. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> Number one in America this weekend. Oh. He had a good Instagram about it. The variety headline was like, something about it like taking down Black Panther or something and he was like well no one can be thrown the king but thank you for going to the movie and I was like that's right (laughs) correct response
0: and also obviously we know that whole narrative is like bullshit because it's just petting movies with black leads against each other but also Black Panther has been out for like over a month yeah (laughs) it's like the movie's been like at the top of the charts for like record amounts of time it's like wow this other movie that's like quite good after everyone's seen Black Panther four times is finally taking over like whatever
2: (laughs) yes Black Panther, which is now the top grossing superhero movie of all time Mm -hmm. in America. So it's doing fine, fine. I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is about all we have to say on these many topics. Thank you to Salagna for visiting us on our podcast. Thanks Uh, for having me. (laughs) Yes. As always, you can donate or subscribe to our Patreon where we will have lots of extra extra grace for you in the coming weeks you can find that at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast and otherwise you can find us at various places on the internet including www.overinvestedpodcast.com on twitter at overinvestedpod and on tumblr at overinvestedpodcast thanks, bye